What up, what up, what up? Hey, everybody. I hope you're doing well. Hey, I just want to let you know, I know everybody can't always support and donate uh, to the podcast, but hey, if you can do a one-time donation, I put up a buy me a coffee uh, link in this description of the podcast. So if you go to the description of the podcast, it'll be at the bottom, and you can just uh, go to that link and you buy me a cup of coffee, or two if you want. And uh, that would just help support the show, and uh, I can... I can wake up a little bit more and bring you more info so thanks for listening to the podcast if you can donate that would be much appreciated and let's get on to the show does monday at the office feel like a storm not with microsoft copilot that feeling when copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly it's sunny again when copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act that sun's shining on a beach and when copilot uncovers hidden insights you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. What up, what up, what up? Welcome back to Lockdown Universe, some of the bizarre, peculiar, and unheard of stories of UFO legend and paranormal lore. Welcome back, welcome back. Happy to be back. Hopefully you guys are doing excellent and taking care of yourselves. Tonight we've got a great one. Like I talked about earlier, the Disclosure Project is back in action. 2023, June 12th. Brand new one, and we're going to get right into it because you should have listened to the last podcast. I told you I'm going to get into the, the one of the very first whistleblowers, and this story is spine-chilling, dude. Okay? It is. Um, and I'm not, like, hyping it up. Um an older guy, man. I know, I know a lot about UFO engagements, a lot about UFO abductions, and this deep state, this this black ops stuff, dude, is effing ter- terrifying. Okay, so we're gonna get to it. So this whistleblower is Michael Herrera, H E R R E R A, and he was in the United States Marine Corps, uh, and he this event took place in Indonesia in two thousand nine. My geography isn't that great, but uh, Indonesia is where this took place, and they are welcoming him to the stage, and he's going to talk about uh, his his place in the Marine Corps and why they were there, and then what happened. Okay, so he's a bigger dude, taller guy. Uh, he's a former U.S. Marine Corps. Um, doesn't state his MOS yet, although they did go on a humanitarian mission. So in 2009, his unit uh, was the most decorated infantry unit in the entire Marine Corps Battalion. Uh, The 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, was called in to a humanitarian uh, mission in the Philippines, Operation Kitsano, uh, which was attached to the 31st Marine Expedition Unit um, for maritime operations in the Southeast Asia Theater. So they were on the 7th Naval Fleet, and uh, they were taken out. He states they were taken out, um, on one of his favorite, um, helicopters, um, called, I believe it's a super stallion. I think it's going to come up here in just a second, but anyway, a tsunami hit this area in Sumatra and Western Indonesia. And, um, out of all the ships in the Southern fleet, the ship he was on was the only one that was routed to that location, which he thought was odd given that 
it was such a big case, but it was a humanitarian operation and he wasn't aware of like the logistics, how many ships it would take. So anyway, this happened September 30th and they get called out and they dropped anchor on October 8th and they were briefed in the officer's mess uh, where they ate <clears throat> and they were told that some of President Obama's family members were present in the city or somewhere near there, and they had a SEAL platoon that was getting ready to go and retrieve those people. Must be nice to be the president. And he stated that Indonesia is also the second largest terrorist capital where they train, uh, and all these guys you know, want a piece of Americans. So even though it was a humanitarian mission, they strapped these guys up with with armor, and, and they were armed. Um, so that they could protect themselves and provide security for the transportation. Uh, and they were just ba basically dropping off medical supplies and sheltering items, food, purified water, things like that, he states. So they ended up selecting uh, certain Marines to go ahead. And there was uh, six Marines in his unit. And it, it was so spread out, they had just NCOs that were in charge. And they boarded a CH-53 Super Stallion which is, he states, his favorite ship or his favorite helicopter that's about 100 feet long. And they flew to the southwestern part of the city of Padang. Um, and so I guess Padang is an important city, but he states that it's ba it was basically reduced to rubble after the tsunami. Um, everything you can imagine, you know, fire, just storm, just annihilating this place. Um, he said it was tough to get in. Um, they were just, uh, ordered to drop them into a certain part, um, into a quick landing zone, which took probably about seven minutes to fly into position. And we were dropped to the LZ and we got off the bird. And then we were instructed at that point through the briefing to push to high ground to at least get a better observation, um, of the area. Interesting. Okay. So he states at that area, you know, at the highest area, you get a better observation of everything. That's the tactical maneuvering, right? You get to high ground so you can put eyes on everything, especially with six Marines so that we have an, we have effective communication at that point. If we need to engage, we can do it properly with the amount of ammunition that they had, uh, which were only M16s and A4s. So they pushed forward and tracked up about 300 meters and at this time, he had a Panasonic camera as well, interestingly enough, to able to take photographs and videos. And when they got to the high point, he states he had a video camera, and it was actually turned to the north, which kind of sloped down. Right there, something stuck out like a sore thumb, especially in the jungle terrain, uh, because everything's vegetation. He states he sees this very bizarre UFO turning around, uh, spinning. And he states this was in prison in his mind for the next 14 years, because what he saw was colors transitioning from a light matte gray to dark black matte, like a Vanta black, like the, the blackest black you can see. So this craft was circular, but one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It was an octagon. Um, uh, so it wasn't perfectly circular. So they were trying to get a closer look. He he places his camera into his um, sack so he could get down there. And he said there was a very odd thing. 
um, because their communications went out as well. Um, and he stated that it could have been very bad or very good, depending on the situation. But he stayed, stated they were approximately 150 meters from the craft when they got to a point where they could see um, see it like right in front of them. There was a clearing, and right in front of them, they could see that there was um, some very large trucks that were beefed up, jacked up, uh, armored up, and had these large containers on them. And they were pointed towards the UFO, almost as if they were loading them into the UFO. Interesting. So we'll get to that in just a minute. He states that there was also a small pyramid-like structure on the very top, which is very interesting as well. He stated there was an audible uh, hum to it, almost like a guitar amp if you were to unplug your, your, uh, your, pl your guitar plug, right? And he stated that... Um, it was very interesting because it was floating about 10 to 20 feet off the ground. It was a very eerie thing to see, he states, because he never saw anything like that in his entire life. Um, and then they were intercepted by a team of soldiers or a rogue military force that had an American accent. They all had American dialects. They had American gear. They had black-on-black -black camouflage, black hats. Uh, similar setup to, you know... A high spec operation, uh, no insignias, no ranks, nothing that would signify who they were, or who they were with. Black baseball caps. They had better weaponry than the Marines did. How you like that? And they even had um, better uh, night vision goggles um, than they would have. Um, so they had the top of the top weaponry, top of the top equipment, um, and they got the drop on the Marines. Got the drop on the Marines. The Marines are supposed to get the drop on everybody. Uh, but these guys got the drop on them, and they were screaming at them. The, the guys in black were screaming at them, uh, asking them who the hell they were. They were threatening to kill them, uh, that they could get lost in the jungle, that they could throw them out of a helicopter if they needed to. And these Marines were nerve-wracked. And he's looking around to his fellow Marines and seeing the fear in their faces. And they basically, you know, said, hey, you know, you know we're, we're not going to engage. We're got our hands up. They patted them down, they patted the Marines down, and they, the weapons were taken from them, and they cleared the condition, you know, they cleared the uh, chambers in their weapons, and they emptied their mag pouches, and they started, you know, engaging them. They asked for their military ID. They pulled it out of their left breast pocket, which is where the military identification is. They gave it to them. Uh, and then these... Men in black, not necessarily the men in black, but these guys, these camo guys in black pulled out what looked like a modern day smartphone, but in 2009, which, you know, different time period, uh, iPhone had just come out, but not, nothing special. Um, and they started doing a biometric tracking of these guys. They started pulling out all the information they could on these guys. They took fingerprints, retina scans. Uh, they took pictures of them so they could document, uh, you know, these guys and, and see who the hell they were. You know, but for some reason it wasn't working. They couldn't like scan their IDs. They couldn't get the information up. So there was a bit of a bit of challenge for what they were trying to accomplish here. Um, but while they were underneath an investigation, they were what they were looking. Uh, Herrera was looking behind them, and you could see that these F Ford F three fifties, you know, the big ones, not one fifty, not two fifty, three fifty, were beefed up, and they had these containers. 
And these containers were very interesting because they kind of look like large pods, right? Like moving pods, like a U-Haul, the bed of a U-Haul on the back of a trailer that these 350s were pulling. Okay. So <clears throat> he said that there was a cylinder on the front that looked like it had oxygen or maybe for vacuum sealing, like what they what he had seen in his military career, they would vacuum seal drug drug containers. However, he came across an individual who stated that he had firsthand account information with this um, this project. He actually was part of this project, not this individual, but another individual he met, and he stated that those containers they did not carry drugs. They're not putting drugs on UFOs. They were doing human trafficking. They were placing humans that were in these containers that had breathing apparatus in the front uh, so that oxygen could get in and, and they could they could survive. Um, so that's what the breathing apparatus for. That's what that unit in the front of these containers was for. And Herrera says he's really upset about it because this area had already gotten ravaged by a tsunami and it was almost like it was free chicken. Like these guys just came in picked up a bunch of Indonesians and they were going to throw them up and, and feed them to the, to the aliens. That's, that's what he felt like he was seeing. And that's what he feels is, is hugely detrimental, right? To the human race, obviously very disheartening, very disheartening. So he's very, very upset. Now he didn't know what he was really seeing back then. So he's just kind of like going along with, you know, Hey, we're, we're getting, you know, we're, we're under fire here. We got to give them what they want. Try not to get killed. Um, so these guys were continuing the, the guys in black were still pointing the weapons at them. They were, um, still going through their, their gear. And Michael saw them start to load these containers right underneath the UFO that was hovering. And as these trucks drove off, what happened is there was a platform on the ground and it actually rose up off the ground itself. And the top part of uh, the bottom part of the craft met it in the middle of the air and it formed one solid piece and then, and then went into the UFO. The UFO lifts right above the tree line. And as soon as it got above the tree line, it was gone in the blink of an eye. He stated that it, it had to have been traveling 5,000 miles an hour or more because it was simply gone that fast. No sound, no, no, um, sh uh, shutter, uh, shutter wind, um, no, no blowing of the trees, no blowing of the coconuts in the trees. Um, nothing like it was on, never there. I mean, that's what's like mind blowing. We watch all these movies and we expect like a sonic boom. We expect, you know, the trees to be blown off all over. No, these things don't go by standard physics and they don't disrupt the area. So he stated a couple things went through his head at that point. He said, we're going to get killed. We saw some way too much. Um, these guys are going to kill us. But all of a sudden, these guys put their weapon back uh, and, and, and kind of rip it around their necks and, and put it on their back. They put their uh, magazines on their back, uh, back of the vest, so they can't really grab at it. Um, and he stated, Michael states that um, the, the the slings that the guns were held on were subpar that were given to the military in 2009. Interestingly enough, not, not that long ago, you would think that they'd be pretty decent. But they cut his neck while they were trying to, you know, ratchet these things back onto him. 
They were told not to look back. They kicked them out. Um, they were not able to talk to anyone. Um, there were two guys that were stating, hey, should we smoke these guys right now? Um, and they were kind of feeding into the fear. But it was he said it was very bizarre because these guys were American. They had American sidearms, American gear, and they take an oath. And they were, you know, an oath to protect the United States um, against enemies, foreign, domestic. And these guys were going to kill these Marines who were only out there to do a job. They weren't out there to go kill these guys. They were out there to do a job. Now, granted, the guys in black, whatever they are, you know, they have a job to do, too. So they have to secure their area. But it seems very, very bizarre. So they get back. To their landing zone, they're asked, "Why are you guys, you know, take so long? Why are your guns on the on your back?" Da 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 da. They they made up a story. So they get back, they get back to their ship out at sea. They were debriefed by an admiral that Michael had never seen before, and it was somebody who seemed like he was out of place. He didn't know if there was any relevance to this admiral to what was going on, but um, they were told that. You know, basically, <laughs> they were going to fast track to a couple days later um, in the bay where uh, they have, they were given three days of freedom. He said, the first night we had to report back to the ship. Each night we were not allowed to stay out in the town. He stated when he got back, his camera that was on his rack, the memory card that was in it was taken out. His battery was taken out. And the camera was left. He said he had secured this camera in his locker and it been, and stuff had been piled on top of the camera. So whoever did it knew who knew what happened. And the other notable thing that was each of the Marines that were with me also had their cell phones taken, uh, even though they didn't bring them on the mission. Other stuff was missing as well. However, no one else in the platoon had their items removed except for these six guys. So moving forward, once they got back to Okinawa, he got a call from uh, while he was in the barracks. And he was told that um, he needed to go up and talk to uh, another officer. Oddly enough, in this building, he states there was no one there except for one gentleman wearing Air Force dress blues, and he was missing a name tag, and that's not Air Force policy. <laughs> so he states that um, he pulled him into the office, and he said, you are not allowed to tell anybody in your chain of command. I don't care if it's a general. I don't care if it's anybody. You are not allowed to talk about what happened. You can go to prison for this, or you could be killed. So he slid over a non-disclosure agreement, and I had two things that I can recall to this very day, he states, because he quickly skimmed through it, and he was you know, losing his mind just thinking about what the hell was going on. And it said TSSCI, top secret, and then uh, the other thing said, it said Indonesia. That's all he remembered. He was forced to sign it. He signed it, and he got the hell out of there as quickly as he could. And he tried to ask the Air Force guy who he was, and he was, of course, you know, brushed off and walked away. Never saw the guy again. Um, the only reason he can come out now is because there was a law passed to allow him to come out. 
and he's urging everyone in Washington, D.C. or any political figures to come out and help them in this disclosure project because people are being threatened to be killed or are being killed um, because of this entire project. Whatever the project is, these guys are being threatened to being possibly, you know, killed over this, you know, ridiculousness. Um, one thing that's interesting is that he asked one of his uh, platoon members to come forward with him, okay? And what he got um, was this response. Okay, this is this is uh, this is a message. I don't know if it's a text message or if it's a written message, but this is the message and the quote here um, from his platoon member that was there because he wanted a second guy to come up to give him extra credence. This guy tells him, "Quote, hey man, this is asking too much of me, and it's not worth the risk. My family and military career far exceed anything you are asking of me." It's not worth my life or jeopardizing my family. I know we go back, like they go back far, but this is asking too much. You need to get out of whatever you're in and don't get me involved with this mess. My career isn't worth helping you. Don't ever ask me to do this shit ever again. That's that and that's the end of the quote. So he couldn't he couldn't get anyone to come forward with him. It doesn't matter because he did a great job of this story, um, but he didn't want, you know, it makes sense. Who the hell wants to put their life on a line to come out for nothing? What What is he going to gain? Only thing he's going to gain is getting killed, getting his family killed or uh, getting his pension taken away or, you know, something else. But apparently this was a guy that was almost willing to come forward. He stayed, uh, Greer states that, they did reach out to the five other guys in the platoon, um, and they're not releasing their names um, because they asked to not uh, release their names. But uh, Herrera did release, you know, this quote that he got from one of his friends, you know. So it just goes to show you that so many of these people are terrified to come forward and say anything. That's why Greer, in this disclosure project, notified the White House and the Congress to give six to 12 months of anonymity to, to or, or not anonymity, but, um, you know, freedom to not be prosecuted so that these guys could come out with their story um, and, and not, not have to worry about, you know, getting, getting their entire lives upended or getting prosecuted or their, their families being, you know, threatened or whatever the case is on, on anything. So, yeah, man. I mean, this is wild stuff because if it's going Greer's way, if it's going Greer's way and Greer stating that this is all the government and that all these all these uh, alien reproduction vehicles are ours, are the government's, then we were down there. And if it's true that there was, were humans in those containers, then... They're stating that the government or some black op agency, maybe it's not the government, maybe it's black op agency, is human trafficking. And if that's true, if it's a black op agency, not part of the government, then why did an Air Force, quote unquote, official come down and have them sign a non-disclosure agreement? Was that even an Air Force official? Or was that part of, you know, like a like a Blackwater, black ops um 
company fake dressing up as an Air Force official with no name tag, having him sign a non-disclosure agreement, freaking this guy out, stating that he could be killed or imprisoned just to get him to sign this NDA so that he's worried about and never coming out with this story for the rest of his life. Well, he came out with it. So what are you going to do now? So it's very interesting. It's very fascinating. Um, so let's get to like my, my thoughts, my thoughts. I, I've heard stories about us doing, if, if let's say this was an alien ship, not a government ship. I've heard stories about us trading beer. Okay. That, you know, could it have been beer in those containers? Maybe, but would it have really needed like a breathing apparatus in the beginning, in the beginning of the container? Probably not. Um, is this the way they would distribute beer in the middle of the forest? Probably not. Does this seem like a, an event that would have taken place in the middle of a forest where they would have done human trafficking in the middle of a forest? Sounds like that's where you would do some human trafficking in the middle of a forest. Um, so, you know, you scoop up a bunch of people, you put them into a bin and you do it not on a military base. You do it out in the middle of nowhere and you pay these guys a whole shit ton of money and off they go. Now, if this is human trafficking and if these guys are, you know, some black op agencies, not the government agency, but some, some, you know, secondary agency they hired or somebody was hired to do this. How, I don't care how much money you're paid. How the hell can you sleep with yourself at night? knowing that you sent off a whole bunch of humans to the aliens to do, to be experimented on, to be killed, to be tortured, to be sent to another plant, to live, whatever the case is, you know, it's not good. If it's not volunteer, it's not good. Okay. Uh, and it doesn't look volunteer with the, the way that these things look like, you know, like those pods that you can get to move, uh, you know, you can stack up your own furniture into, you can order these pods to come to your house They're called pods or, um, there's another name for them, but anyway, you know, or like the back of a U-Haul bed, you know, it's just, it's just, uh, it's all like a shipping container, just all metal. There's no windows on this thing. Um, they just look like it was cattle to be shipped off. So, uh, what do I think? Do I think that that could happen? Sure. I mean, it doesn't seem like they were shipping beer in this. According to Randy Kramer, we're the best at shipping beer. We would have shipped it out of a warehouse where the beer was cold and shipped it, you know, out of a location where it was being made. So it's not, it's not, not general commerce that we're shipping off here. It's something special, whatever that case is. Uh, is it humans? I can't say for sure. I don't think anybody can, but is it cows? Seems to me that aliens can come get cows if they want them. That seems to be not really a big issue. Um, now let's go to the human aspect. Let's say this is a human ship and they're, they're taking these humans up in this ship. What the hell would they do with them? What the hell would they be doing with them? Would they be, would the humans be taking them on their, sh on the ship and then taking them on the ship up to an alien transfer center and trading them for something? Maybe, maybe. I really don't know, man. I don't know, man, but uh, it's fucking disturbing. It's fucking disturbing, to say the least. Honestly, I'm surprised if that's the case and they let these guys go. I'm mind boggled 
that they let these guys go. These guys should have been should have been jungle toast, you know, just just blobs in the jungle because there's no way that <laughs> most of these guys would have let them go. But then, you know, then they have a whole scenario on their hands where, you know, the, maybe the military is coming after them. They don't want to kill them. So I don't know, man. It's it's a wild story. I'm going to leave it at that. I, I, I don't know how far I can go, you know, any further other than that. But, yeah, it's really it's pretty fascinating. So anyway, guys, I'm gonna let you go. I hope you're having a great night, taking care of yourselves physically, spiritually, emotionally, following through on your hobbies and your goals and your dreams. And as always, continue to question the universe around you. Until next time, guys, take care. Lockdown Universe out.